Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Why must every generation think their folks are square? No matter where their heads are, they know moms ain't there. For I swore when I was small that I'd remember when. I knew what's wrong with them, that I was younger then. Determined to remember all the cardinal rules. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Ben Jarofsky here. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it is Wednesday, September 18th, but of course, You'll be hearing this anytime it's a podcast, and uh, you'll probably be hearing this 10 years from now. Uh, my guest sitting in the studio right across from me is a very distinguished young man. Uh, and as we always do with, on the Ben Jarofsky Bonus Show, I ask my guests, distinguished as they are, to introduce him or herself. So guest, introduce yourself. I am Peter Cunningham, longtime friend of Ben Jarofsky. Longtime fan of Ben Jarofsky. Uh, I've been involved in government and politics here in Chicago for about 30 years and beyond Chicago. Uh, I've done some work nationally, served in government in Washington, done a lot of work, worked with the Daly administration, uh, worked with Arne Duncan, worked with the Obama administration, and uh, just glad to be here. All right, very good. And uh, that's really great to hear. Uh, uh, Peter, you call yourself a good f- a friend and fan of Ben Jarofsky. I'm going to send that tape uh, to all your previous employers. I'm sure they'll be loving to hear that. Uh, the joke I have with Peter is that uh, we've been on opposite sides of pretty much every political issue in the city of Chicago since I met him. And I, wanna, I will tell in a little bit how I met him. Uh, but he's always been one of the more civil uh, and decent human beings that I had to deal with on the other side in that return a phone call uh, when we were done with the business of the day, chit chat about this, that, and the other thing. We share a love for music and sports uh, and national politics. We are both obsessed with national politics. Uh, and so as a result, I th- always thought, Peter, that like your job was to deal with people like me, like the dailies and the roms. Uh, of the world hired you, particularly because you're like the the Ben Whisperer or something like that. Am I wrong about that? No, I think that uh, uh, certainly I've been asked to help work with media a lot. But what I really believe is that the best way to get good media is to be responsive to reporters. You know, I, I 
ran the media shop over at the CPS for a number of years under Arnie. And, uh, you know, I always would go back to the people in the bureaucracy and say, listen, these guys have a job to do. They're going to do their job whether they like it or not. So we got to give them our side of the story, and we shouldn't make it so hard for them. Uh, I've seen, you know, over the years, different people handle that job differently and make it hard for reporters, and then, you know, they're angry when their stories don't come out the way they want. Uh, you're not going to get all the stories the way you want, but you got to, you know, I believe in access. I believe in transparency. So. All right. Well, the first time I met uh, Peter Cunningham was in 1998, and uh, I been uh, was writing a story about uh, the um, the governor's race uh, and at the time uh, Peter was doing PR for John Schmidt who was uh, one of the candidates it was a three person it was it 1998 yeah it's the Glenn, right, Glenn Pichard right, was in the race good. and Roland Burris right uh, maybe yeah. yeah Roland Burris was in the race yeah. uh, and uh, so what struck me we're going to get to this it was at Navy Pier uh, it was the day that John Schmidt, John Schmidt was a good government lawyer from Evanston. Uh, was Rich Daly's first chief of staff. Rich Daly, Rich Daly hired him to make himself Rich Daly look good. Here, look, I'm putting my spin on it. I'm waiting for Peter to disagree with me, but he's not. Daly did not have a reputation for a big government guy. He's like, I know what I'll do. I'll hire John Schmidt from Evanston. Every, all the goo-goos love him. And uh, I think it worked out pretty well for uh, Rich Daly. And it worked out, I'm sure, for John Schmidt because he went on to have a very lucrative law career. But anyway, so Peter Cunningham is doing PR for John Schmidt, and all of a sudden, he pulls out a guitar and starts playing the guitar. I'm like, God damn, man, I can play the guitar. Right, we had a, we had a, blue, we had a blues band up on uh, Navy, Navy Pier to kick off a, a rally. It was kind of fun. Do you remember the song? Uh, I don't. Do you? John Jacob Jingle Hiver Schmidt. <laughs> okay, there come you go. on, man. <laughs> You're playing the guitar. I got a little. Do it. And I was like, because people don't know this, but I attempted to learn how to play the guitar. It was roughly in the '90s. It was something I did in the '90s, uh, Peter, before I just quit it altogether. And the thing that separates men from boys, I maybe I've told you this a few hundred times, but you don't realize, it's bar, bar chords. chords. Yes, we have to make your fingers go across all the frets and hold down certain frets. I could never do that, so I just. Quit the guitar. I was like, damn, man, this guy knows how to play a bar chord. I do, yeah. No, I've been playing my whole life. I love to play. All right, well, you brought your guitar. We're gonna, you're going to do a song. Uh, you have a band, right? Is it correct? Let's just get that out I of the do, way. I do, yeah. It's called the Bread and Butter Band. We play in Chicago about three or four times a year. I used to play up on Milwaukee Avenue a lot at a place called Nick's. Now I play at this place called The Hungry Brain on Belmont. And uh, so he's going to bring out his guitar uh, toward the end of the show and do a song for us. Uh, maybe take requests from Dennis uh, <laughs> as well. All right, let's get, get you, get, let's go back in time a little bit, Peter, before I met you. Tell folks a little bit about yourself. You're not from Chicago originally. You're New Yorkers, I recall. I am. I was born and raised in New York um, and uh, in the Bronx, actually. An area of the Bronx called Riverdale, which is... Sort of like the Beverly of the Bronx. It's kind of a nicer, nicer section of town. Um, and uh, kind of came up though, you know, my dad was in politics in New York. Um, he was a county chairman of the Bronx Democratic Party and uh, later became the state chair. And so that was. Is your dad a lawyer? Is this his professional he, lawyer? Yeah, he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer. But that. That formed me a little bit about politics. He was a big Democrat, really believed in the, the Democratic Party. He's got a great story about when he was a little kid. He uh, 
they had uh, the, the local priest used to get the Army Navy or the Army Notre Dame football football, and he would uh, raffle it off to the kid who raised the most money for the church. And uh, my father was working really hard. He's about fourth grade or something, working really hard selling these little chances and raffle tickets to get the football. And the night before the raffle was finished, he was far and away the winner by every everybody's standard. And one of his classmates, his father was a local politico, and he took them down to the local political club, and everybody bought a raffle ticket, and he won the football the next day. And that that's introduced my father to politics. That's that's the way that works. And uh, he went on to pursue a lifelong career in politics. Was your father uh, a big fan of, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a New York politicians, Cuomo, Koch? He was in the uh, Hugh Carey era Hugh Carey. when he, in the 70s, and a beam. A beam, um, mayor of New York. Yeah, who, uh, you know, presided over a very difficult time in the city. Uh, your father was an ally of these gentlemen. He was, yeah. And... Uh, so you grew up as a kid, you were following politics, or, yeah. were, you, or were you yeah. rebelling against your dad? No, we were following politics. You know, my my father was a 32-year-old young political operative in the Bronx when John F. Kennedy was president, and he was the first Catholic. I was raised Catholic. Uh, and uh, so that was a huge moment in my dad's life. He went to Kennedy's inauguration. Do you have any memories of Kennedy, or are you too young? No, not really, not really. I, Vaguely remember the assassination. I was about six. You must have been a Bobby Kennedy fan. Yep, I knew uh, I knew of Bobby Kennedy a lot, and uh, I went to school with some of his nephews and nieces. And of course, I'm very friendly with Bobby's son Chris here in Chicago. Did you support Chris? I can't remember. Oh yeah. Yeah. For Chris? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, well, wow, my God, Chris Kennedy, that must have been, we'll get to that. Chris Kennedy's great line about uh, uh, planning policies. I'm writing a note to myself to talk about that, planning policies in the city of Chicago uh, under Daly and Rom. I thought you and he would at least find some common ground on property, the property tax system. We found uh, common ground on quite a few things. Uh, I'll jump ahead to that. Uh, uh, when Chris <laughs> Kennedy ran, it he was denouncing the property tax system, which is something, of course, I just spent a lot of time doing. But he also uh, was denouncing, the poli- for a moment anyway, the planning policies of Rahm Emanuel, very critical of Rahm. Uh, and I would always point out to him that Rahm was basically following Richie Daly's uh, planning policy. Richie Daly's created them. So I said, if you're going to criticize, you should criticize both mayors, not just Rahm. Uh, but it was more popular at the time to, to criticize Rom because most people have forgotten daily. But uh, I think Chris, Chris Kennedy did a great service uh, to people. He raised an issue. He really escalated that issue. Yes, he did. And I have uh, given him a lot of credit for that over the years. All right. Uh, and so uh, uh, did you get involved in these political in political campaigns? Is like, did you work for A-Beam as a kid? or No, I didn't. I was too young. I mean, I mean, I was in high school. I went away to a high school in Connecticut. So I wasn't around. But... I just knew of it, and you know, again, I was too young for that period to be really active. So when did you start getting into politics? You know, I went away to college, and I came back in early 80s. Uh, I moved out to Long Island. I worked for a small newspaper out there for a while, and uh, had a girlfriend from college who was from the Midwest, and, uh, and so I moved out here in 1987 and uh, t- to be with her, she's now my wife. And uh, I just started following politics a lot more when I got here. Uh, Harold Washington was the mayor at the time. At the time I was playing in a reggae band with all these uh, African-American guys and Jamaican guys, and they loved Harold. And Harold died like a few months after I got here. I think I moved here in January of 87, and he died in like 
Thanksgiving or something like that. Mm-hmm. About, is that about right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I saw the reelect. I saw how excited people were by him, and uh, you know, it made me feel. You know, municipal politics is just so, so palpable and you know, close to people, and people really loved him. And then these guys who never talked about politics were crying, sitting in the uh, club the night Harold died, and uh, it just made me realize how powerful that was. And it, it had been a while since I'd been involved, uh, even you know, in New York, thinking about New York. So. Um, I guess Koch had been the mayor for most of the 80s. Um, so anyway, being here just made me think a lot more about it. And then I started to get involved in it. I worked in Neil Hardigan's race in 1990. Mm-hmm. And then I switched over to Daly in 91 after he was reelected. It's, so why Daly? Well, he was the mayor. And, you know, he was looking for a speechwriter. And I, uh, one of the guys I worked with on the Hardigan race knew me uh, worked for daily also and he said come on in so i go in to meet the mayor and the time i was living in bridgeport uh, and the mayor knew this of course and he was living in bridgeport and the first question he asked me was why do you live in bridgeport and i said i like it there it kind of reminds me of the bronx when i was a kid you know um bakeries you know the churches and the parishes and all that stuff it just kind of felt uh kind of old school more and i liked it so i um so yeah, I, I worked. I was his speechwriter for about four or five years, and, I, and then I uh, did a couple of other things with him. You know, I kind of was a senior aide on various issues, crime, transportation. Now there's this uh, notion in the city of Chicago that to get a job like that uh, with Mayor Daley, you have to know somebody. Uh, did you find it that way that you had to actually know somebody that you had to have a, con- a connection to get into the door? I guess so, because, you know, the person who brought me in had worked with me on the Hardigan campaign, and the word went around that I was pretty handy with a pen, and I could, you know, write a speech. And, you know, he was elected in 89, the special election after Harold died. And um, so he was sort of in automatic reelect mode right away. <laughs> so the political operation, you know, David Axelrod and some of the other folks were still very much closely tied to 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 you know very active 91 was the beginning of his first full term and so they were saying okay we really need to build out the in-house team and so so they asked me to come over and he interviewed me and that was it and uh you said something you either said it to me or you sent it to me in an email or i read it but it stuck out of my mind and i'm paraphrasing uh, I don't apologize for working for candidates who win. Uh, and I think you were alluding to Daly, Obama, Rahm, and a various other candidates who won. Of course, I've usually been cheering on the candidates who lose. I'm a totally different... Uh, the champion of the underdogs. <laughs> Have you ever heard the song Deacon Blue uh, by Steely Dan? It kind of yeah. sums up my political career here, Peter, in the city of Chicago. I mean, what I what I think I was trying to say is that, um, is that you have to win to get stuff done. And you and I might agree that we want to, um, you know, pass the Green New Deal. So trillion dollar plan to transition the entire economy to fossil you know away from fossil fuels but it has to pass and in order for it to pass you got to win so i believe that that uh you know i sort of believe in uh centrist politics just because you have to win well if you don't win then you know you can stand on your 
on your on your laurels as having fought the good fight for something that will never pass and will never happen. And it doesn't mean I disagree with folks about some of these issues. It's more that I just I'm sensitive to the fact that sometimes the people and the voters aren't aren't ready for the big kinds of changes we all want to see. You just mentioned the Green New Deal. Uh, now, the Green New Deal is an example of a, a progressive plan that uh, won't pass if there's opposition from centrists. Uh, so it's it's really difficult situation. Uh, if you're advocating for centrists who won't vote for the Green New Deal, then the Green New Deal will never pass. And the only way it'll pass is if the centrists that you work for are defeated. You know, I don't know that centrists are against the Green New Deal. I think they're probably afraid of the cost. You know, I think that they share a lot of the goals of the Green New Deal. I think I, I did a little work for Hickenlooper. His problem with the Green New Deal was that it it uh, included a guaranteed government job for anybody who wants one. And he just thought that was a bridge too far. But all the goals around shifting away from fossil fuels, he was on board with. So, you know, I just think this is all part of the debate. How do we how do we come up with legislation that not only can pass, I mean, look at the Affordable Care Act, for example. It's the single um, most significant legislation Obama passed, and in many ways, the only really significant progressive legislation since the 60s, right? I mean, really significant, but that really expanded the safety net in a significant way. And that cost Obama his majority in the House, cost him control in the House, and therefore, it stalled his agenda for the next six years. Now, I'm not saying the Affordable Care Act wasn't worth it, but you just need to do that political calculus and ask yourself, okay, if we do this, just as Lyndon Johnson said when he signed the Civil Rights Bill, I just signed away the South for a generation. He did. Yeah. <laughs> he did it with open eyes, and we saw this Nixon-Southern strategy kick in in 1968, and it's still happening mm -hmm. 50 years later. So you just have to go in there with, with, with your eyes open. I mean, if, if somebody had said to President Obama, we can pass the Affordable Care Act, but it's going to cost you control of the House, and you won't be able to do anything else for your next six years, would he have done it? Maybe. Would it have been worth it? Maybe. 20 million people got insured who didn't get insurance. But those are the political trade-offs that you have to make. And, I, you know, I, I, I don't like to be naive about that stuff, mm -hmm. um, much as I'm... I feel like you know my my principles and goals are as progressive as anybody. You know, I'd like to see an expanded safety net. I'd love to see more investment in education. I'd love to see uh, issues like homelessness and housing addressed in a much more robust way. Uh, and uh, you know, but you have to build public will for it. All right. Uh, before we go into the strategies, the national strategies around affordable care and uh, the issues you just uh and uh green new deal let's talk about going back to chicago again did you ever find yourself in a position where you really were compromising uh your ideals your progressive ideals and you had to struggle with it uh to put forth whatever it was that a daily or a rom wanted you to put out well, first of all, I never worked for Rom. Just to be clear, I've never worked for the city when he was the mayor. No, I just wanted <laughs> put to put that I, on a T-shirt. No, 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 no. I just want the facts. Yeah, I just yeah. want to make sure the, the facts are clear. I worked for Daily from '91 through '96. Gotcha. But then I consulted with it, various city agencies after mm -hmm. that. So you could say I worked for, worked for him. You were for working me. for. Oh, I said you were a consultant when you were at the board of Ed. Yeah, but that's the same thing, yeah. in my opinion. I wouldn't. It's not an important distinction. I certainly worked for um, Arnie. 
directly, and and I did some work for Paul and Gary. So you could say I, I worked for Daily uh, all that time, even though Paul, I was consulting. Ballas. Ballas. Gary. Chico. Chico. Yeah. Just going to get the names right there. Yeah. All right. So um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, like a lot of people, you know, I've looked at the police situation, the police uh, abuses, and thought a lot of this stuff is indefensible. And, you know, does that make me feel compromised because I work for a mayor who didn't do enough about that? Not really, but I certainly, you know, feel like we didn't do enough in this city. And I don't even know whether the current mayor is going to go far enough to really reform the department. It's not easy. Well, you once told me, I don't know if you remember, we've had many conversations over the years. I, I think I remember them better than you do. Yeah. Uh, you once told me that... You said, Ben, you give too much credit to Mayor Daley, I'm paraphrasing you now, uh, for having power. And in some ways, he feels limited. And one of the ways he feels limited is his connection with the police department. And he's not going to confront the police department head on. uh, And no mayor will probably ever do that. And I'm paraphrasing from a conversation from years ago, but I remembered it all these years. I'll give you a a broader philosophical statement straight from his own lips. Uh, You know, I asked him about unions um, because I did a project for him recently, sort of an oral history project. And his one line, and he's really good at one-liners, is don't make him an enemy. You know, and for 25 years, he he had, I think, 25 years without a single strike, except maybe a very brief one at city colleges. But literally, he had 25 years of labor peace and it's worth remembering that there were nine teacher strikes in Chicago between 1970 and 1987. Literally every other year there was a strike. And there wasn't a single strike from 87 to 2012. That is not true. Uh, there was not a single Chicago teacher strike from 1987 to 2012. That's a fact. Uh, y- are you sure of that? Yes. You know what? Um, I, I, re- I remember Mayor Daley early on. Wait, you're, you're about to make a good point. We shouldn't get... Uh, there was, what, there was Jackie fought, There was like negotiations going really late into the correct. night. Correct. And I was with him on those. But, okay. but there was no teacher strike okay. from 1987 they cut to the 2012. Deal. Fair enough. Okay, go on. And uh, and some people think he bought labor peace because he, he gave them steady threes and fours. Over most of those years, threes and four mean percent raises. Three, four, three and four percent raises, maybe some twos, but mostly threes and fours. Um, and a lot of people thought he bought labor peace. Uh, he he uh, he had a lot of um, labor agreements. He had good relationships with the with the labor community. Uh, but his message to me was, "Don't make him an enemy." And with respect to the police department, I think he really understood that a mayor wasn't omnipotent. That they have power, um, whether it's you know, the power to sort of withdraw from from the confrontation that they feel they, you know, that they've historically done when it comes to policing, uh, whatever you call it, the blue flu or the sick out or whatever. I don't know what they call it, but, you know, um, I mean, I think Daly understood that you got to work with them and you got to be respectful of their pressures. And, you know, when you got a society like ours where everybody's with so many guns, you know, you're going to have police overly jittery and certainly not excusing in any way uh, a lot of the things that have happened here in Chicago and all around the country. But he, 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 he at least would look for that balance when it came to dealing with the police, police well, department. And my translation of that uh, would be that he was not going to 
confront this central issues that has existed in the city of Chicago for as long as I can remember. Uh, these uh, often violent relations between the Chicago Police Department uh, and the black community. Yeah. No, and we had a couple of incidents. Um, I think that Northwestern football player in Haggerty, is that her name? Mm-hmm. Latanya Haggerty, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. There was, a, there, was, there was a time, I, I think those two incidents happened like within 48 hours. So there was a, a moment where, where, you know, things got very, very tense around police community relations. So that's always been there. It's not a new issue. He didn't solve it. Uh, um, Mayor Emanuel didn't solve it. And we'll have yet to see if Mayor Lightfoot will solve it. Was there ever anybody in the administration who strongly articulated, since we're using this issue, uh, police issue, would would dare to confront Mayor Daley directly and say, whatever they call them, Mr. Mayor, Rich, I don't know what people behind the scenes call mayors. Uh, you, Mr. Mayor. Mr. Mayor, you have to deal with this. This is imperative. Or do people not talk that way to a mayor? No, I think lots of people would do that. His chief of staff would do it all the time. I'm sure Ed Bedore, Tim Degnan, you know, the early guys who were his peers, and in some ways even, um, you know, Ed Bedore worked for Richard J. Daly. Uh, so, you know, he'd really been around a long time. Ed, Ed really believed that um, the right way to run a city was to, you know, raise taxes a little bit every year to sort of keep up with costs. <laughs> yeah. and, and the mayor was really, really, really against raising property taxes. He'd do anything to avoid it, as we know. Um, and uh, so every year they'd sit down with him for the budget, for the, sort of the, the pre-budget conversation around August 1st or something, or maybe uh, July 15th, say, here's the deal. We think, you know, you're going to have a $250 million hole or whatever. Here's some options. We could do this, this, this. And he just turns to him and say, we're not raising taxes. And he'd start the conversation the same way. And I think out of 22 years, I think the number of times he raised city property taxes was just a handful. Does that sound right to you? Well, okay, yeah. It's, it's, uh, Whereas he raised them for schools yes. almost every year. <laughs> and he raised them with the TIFFs every year. Uh, as uh, And to his credit or discredit, he was pretty much the guy who figured out the TIF program. And I remember explaining to you how TIFs work many years ago. You were a fast learner. And uh, really, you think <laughs> I've learned? Uh, well, you learned one basic fundamental thing. And uh, I'm sharing private conversations with Peter Cunningham. But what the hell? It was only 20 years ago. I think the statute of limitation has expired. And you said that every mayor need, after I explained you how the program works, you said, Ben, with that inimical Pete Cunningham, I'm going to try not to call you stupid attitude. Ben, every mayor needs an off-the-shelf source of money for himself, okay? Every mayor. you got to have that, Ben, all right? And <laughs> I've been quoting that ever since. Uh, Off-the-shelf. I, mean, I don't yeah, know about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> at the time you did. But anyway. Well, what I think, what I, think I was trying to say is that... Um, a mayor is elected to, you know, with a vision, with an idea about what he or she wants to do. And your ability to do that is extremely limited. You don't, 99% of your money is committed on the day you start your budget, right? Or maybe 95 or whatever. Most of it is, right? Yeah. You got to pay for the streets and sand. You got to pay for all the city services. You got to pay the police. Costs are going up every year. 
contracts, labor contracts, everything's going up, and there's hardly any money. And you say, oh, well, how do we fix the west side? How do we fix the south side? What do we do for downtown? What do we do here? And that's what TIF became. It became the way to at least, in, you know, have money available to do projects that otherwise could never get done. All right. Well, we'll not, we'll somehow manage to avoid having a TIF debate uh, at this moment. We'll tiff, let it no go. Tiff over no TIF. TIF over TIF. We'll just move on from TIF. Uh, but at the time, you were working for the Chicago Public Schools, and I was always uh, urging uh, the the leaders of the Chicago public schools to stand up uh, to daily on uh, the TIF deal, but as I I learned from watching people in Chicago, when you work uh, in the daily days, when you work for Mayor Daly, you're in the daily team, and if you're on the daily, that team, is part of the deal. Yes, you are on the team, and if he's doing things you disagree with, then you know the shouldn't work for him. I mean, I believed in what he was doing. I still believe in what he was doing. I think he was a great mayor. You think you still think Mayor Daley was a great mayor? Absolutely. Why do you say that? Uh, you know, a mayor's job is to bring people together above all else. And when I was working for him, he knew that the city had been divided so much in the 1980s, council wars, divided over race. He knew the history of the city as well as anybody. And uh, every time he wanted to do something, he would press the people around him, his staff, to say, well, if you're doing that on the north side, you got to do it on the south side. If you're doing it on the north side, you got to do it on the west side. You know, he, he would, you know, somebody would come in and want to build a grocery store on the north side, or he'd hear about it through the planning department. And he'd say, well, I want him to build a couple on the south side, too. He would make them do that. Or somebody would say, we're going to rebuild the blue line up on the north side. And he'll say, well, what about the green line? What about, what about you know, the red line on the south side? He, 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 he would force us all to think through those issues, to understand that every issue in Chicago had a potentially racial dimension. And how do you think that through? Um, you know, you think about his votes, Ben. I think he got 6% of the black vote in 1989. I think he got like 66% of the black vote in 2007, his last election. He won every black ward. He won all 50 wards in 2007. What does that tell you? I mean, think about that. Uh, well, uh, what does that tell you? Uh, it tells you, well, there's many different interpretations. There's uh, a lot of different interpretations. interpretations but the Peter Cunningham interpretation would be that uh, he successfully convinced black voters that he, it was in their best interest to vote for Richard M. Daley. Correct. The Ben Jarofsky uh, interpretation would be there was a lot of alienation, apathy, discouragement of voter uh, participation and turnout continue to fall. Uh, we're still seeing that in the city of Chicago to this, ver this very day. Uh, there's an astounding amount of just, I don't know, weariness. Yeah, that's the true. thought that government will not affect me in any way. I can't expect anything good. Nihilism, I would call it, Peter. Uh, it, that's just so embedded in the psyche of people in the city of Chicago, where they sign over to these powerful mayors, these temperamental, powerful mayors, and get so little in return for it. That's my interpretation. He broke the will. Uh -huh. the, the black political will in the city of Chicago is destroyed. And not all of it, I got to, Daly didn't do it all. It was an insanely destructive fight between Tim Evans and Gene Sawyer contributed to it. But 
the notion that you can't beat City Hall, the notion that you can never defeat the Daily Machine. Yeah, I don't. I just think that that's more myth than fact. I think the fact is is that he he was responsive. He he spent a lot of time in the neighborhoods. He he um, he loved the job, uh, and you know I always say that. He would go out to some meeting at a public housing. I worked with Terry Peterson on the CHA plan. And, you know, he'd go out to some senior housing unit on the west side, south side or something, and he'd spend 45 minutes longer than he was supposed to be there just chatting with, you know, some old ladies who live in the housing project and talk about, uh, you know, their life and what's going on with them. I mean, he really, really liked to be there. Mm -hmm. I think they saw that. Recognize that. Well, I'll, I don't think. I mean, he won all fifty wards. I mean, it, it, you know, and all this talk about the machine, the machine, as uh, David Axelrod recently wrote, there's really no machine left, just a few spare parts. Yeah, uh, that's actually a pretty good line. Uh, and uh, I will say this: uh, I, I must concede, you're absolutely correct that uh, Daly had a way about him uh, that it was almost instinctive. He learned it from his father, I think, uh, and he had a way of making people feel that he cared about them and that he cared about the city. I don't know how many people have told me, Peter Cunningham, uh, that Mayor Daley, Ben, say what you will about Mayor Daley, but he really loves Chicago. No question and about it, it. And, okay, now we'll move forward to Ron. Nobody ever told me that about Ron. <laughs> okay. Everybody, <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall at Ron. And, you know, it's kind of funny, Peter. Uh, He's a different kind of guy. Different kind of guy. And Ken Davis always teases me because I find myself, you know, say what you will about Daly. And then I would, I spent all those years complaining, you know, and then Rom, can, can you come back, Daly? Yeah. Uh, talk about the difference between Rom and Daly. Well, you know, uh, Rom was a staffer before he was an elected official. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a staffer's mentality is different than an elected official. As I said, you know, an elected official has to bring people together. He's got to be a politician, and that's a different gig. You know, a staffer is quite often somebody who's given some impossible task and told, get it done. And Rom was really good at that. Mm -hmm. uh, and he did it for uh, President Clinton. Um, he did it for... Probably Mayor Daly in one or two ways. I don't know how, um, and and so I think he brought sort of a, a a staffer's mentality to some of the things he wanted to do. I want to get this done, whatever it takes, because I know how hard it is to get things done, especially Washington, where you just got to bull your way through, you know, uh, you know, resistance and political resistance and whatever. Um, so, uh, having said that, you know, I think that. He, he made a lot of very, very tough decisions, and including raising taxes in order to pr protect pensions and come up with fees that, so that the pension system was funded. I mean, he, he didn't create that problem, but he certainly inherited it. and he Exacerbated for the first four years by so? not paying attention to it. You think so? Yeah, I think you know. I think you think so too. You no, just won't I don't. Say it. I no, I think that I, I think that. I mean, <laughs> the mayor Mayor Daly did a big report in about two thousand two two thousand seven or eight, I think, or eight or nine or something like that about the pension problem. Yeah, and then you know he was getting to the end of his his period there, but you know the problem was really on the front burner. Everybody saw it. Well, here, here, here Mayor Daly, as you remember. Uh, you were in Washington, so you missed all this. Or maybe you were not. I don't know where you were. Uh, Mayor Daley uh, decided it was in the best interest of the city of Chicago uh, 
to have the Olympics come here in 2016. Right. And he dedicated the better part of at least two years, if not three, to bringing the Olympics to Chicago. Mm. And this was roughly 2007, 2008 into 2009. Yeah, I remember Obama was president when the the big news dropped. When the big news (laughs) dropped. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I urge Obama not to jump aboard the bandwagon. And the last person he listened to on that was me. Uh, And so... You didn't hear any talk from anybody about our pension problem when we were all on board. Uh, we had 10-year ten 10-year ten labor agreements. We 10-year labor agreements. Nobody talked about a pension problem. Instead, everybody said we had enough money to pay for the Olympics. All of a sudden, we don't get the Olympics. Boom. We got all, uh, Wait, where does pension problem come did, from? Did the, did the unions <laughs> talk about it? No. What do you mean? Did were, the, did, were they talking about it? The pension problem? Yeah. No. Yeah. Nobody was talking Nobody about the pension problem. It. Nobody. The business community, the unions, the politicians, the tribunal, the tribune. Oh, do you hear them right now ranting and raving about the pension problem? This, that, and the other thing. Yeah. They don't want old people to to get to live. I guess I don't know. Uh, they figure out there's going to be another way for old people to live. Yeah. Uh, but now it's when you get the Olympics. That's when we had a pension problem. Yeah. Isn't that funny how it works in Chicago, Peter Cunningham? So, uh, I've been around long enough to know back in the 90s when things were flush, mm-hmm. everybody agreed let's not pay the pension let's give ourselves better raises let's like yeah. let's like avoid property taxes yeah. let's 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 do that and everybody went along with it and because the pensions were fully funded at yeah. the time we were flush so the idea of overfunding them was sort of you no know, nobody thought that was a good idea yeah. or like, i don't remember anybody saying let's overfund them because someday it won't be that good and then of course you know 2007 came 2008 and that's when everything really so dropped So do you out. get frustrated when uh, you see some of the same voices uh, who were very much a part of the Daily Chorus? I mean, Daily had pretty much universal support, except for a few malcontents like myself, uh, throughout the 90s and in the O's. And uh, I, I, I'm personally frustrated when I see the people who were not with me back then suddenly saying, ripping Daily. This is where I actually find myself getting defensive on Daly's behalf. Uh, you know, they talk about the, like just you alluded to. I didn't hear anybody in the 90s saying pay the pension funds. No, they were yeah. they were mostly nearly fully funded. Yeah. And, you know, if we had to pay the pension funds, we would have maybe had to have smaller raises yeah. and nobody wanted that. And so, you know, or more or more property taxes. Or more property taxes. Yeah. You just, yeah, any problem. I mean, I don't recall anybody even raising the issue. And and now, of course, they're saying he, they kicked the can down the road. Yep. Uh, there was not good financial stewardship. Mm-hmm. And this is, they're speaking about a man that universally they supported, year after year endorsed. Yep. All the politicians lined up yep. to kiss his ring, including Mayor Rahm, mm-hmm. and extolling his virtues left and right. I don't know. I I think you know. And everybody talks about the parking meters as a bad decision he made, and that happened toward the end of his career, and um, and so that left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. And I've seen message research that affirms that people thought that was a huge mistake. Uh, there's an argument for it, but I'm not going to make it here. No, why would you? <laughs> that would be the end of that. Be the end of it. But um, yeah. But you know, yeah. I, I do know the circumstances that led to it, and. Um, uh, but, you know, if you set that aside and you look at the 22 years, you look at the 
the progress he made in the schools. And as you know, a national study came out and said we're the fastest improving school district in the country uh, from a Stanford researcher and from the University of Illinois. Now, those reforms, that was 30 years of reform, and I know that people didn't agree about all of them. People didn't love them all. But something happened over those years that really, uh, you know, moved Chicago from the worst schools in the nation to at least the fastest improving. They still have a lot of work to do, but that was progress. I think you look at the downtown, and you can complain that that's the wrong kind of development, and it happened at the expense of neighborhoods. But that downtown was dying in 1989 when when uh, Rich Daly was elected mayor, and by 2011, when he stepped down, it was tr- transformed. Uh, and there were lots of neighborhoods that are transformed also, but there's others that never that didn't. And there's no question about it. The South and the West Side ha- did not recover and still haven't recovered. I, I would vigorously disagree with you on those two points. Number one, I don't believe the schools were worse in the nation when Mayor Daley inherited them. Uh, I think what Mayor Daley was very successful at You're doing, disagreeing with Bill Bennett? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's your source. Thank you for finally uh, citing your source. A very political right-wing Republican named Bill Bennett came to town in an effort to completely undercut the Chicago Teachers Union and the mayor of the city of Chicago, Harold Washington, who was the symbol of democratic resistance. Do you know what the Reagan. graduation rates were back then? Oh, you want to get in the graduation rates, a whole other uh, story. But my, uh, which I remember having a debate with you at the hideout on this point. Uh, And, uh, but by and large, I think that public schools in the city of Chicago were pretty much the same uh, when I moved, as they were when I moved here in 1981. You think they're the same today? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that by and large, public schools in the city of Chicago have always done a pretty good job of providing education for people who are relatively wealthy or middle class and have always struggled to help people who are poor. And that's because there's a big, the single most significant uh, factor in how a child uh, is educated is income and nobody and I don't think I don't care if it's Ruth Love, Manfred Bird, Paul Vallis, Gary Chico, uh, any one of the leaders of the city of Chicago's public schools knows how to bridge that gap. Nobody does, Peter. You know that as well as Artie Duncan doesn't know how to do that. So to pretend as though there's some mayor that comes in and has figured out a way to get a kid from a poor background to do as well at school as a kid from a wealthy background is fooling yourself. Don't you agree with me on that point? No, I do not agree with you on that point. Which I part? believe that there are many, many examples all across the country, and including here in Chicago, of schools serving low-income kids that are beating the odds and that are getting good results. Oh, I never said they weren't getting uh, good results. I wouldn't say that. that uh, but, that well, the, but I'm saying they're overcoming the destiny that you said exists. If they're poor, you know, that's the big factor in their yes, life. Absolutely. Okay, I know it's a big factor, but there are people who overcome that. And, absolutely. And who, 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 who help kids, who somehow get them over the finish line through graduation and, and get were, them into college. And they were doing that in 1981, and they were doing that in 1982. Not, not as many, not, not as many on a percentage basis as today. Not even close. Not uh, even close. I, 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 neither of you, neither you nor I have the study in front of us, but I will bet you lunch or dinner at the restaurant of your choice that what you just said is not true. There were some great teachers and great kids in 1984. No one's denying that there weren't great teachers. That you know, that, there's my, tons of great teachers, and you know, let me. Let, I don't blame the teachers for what happened in 1987, but I do give them a lot of credit for what's happened in 2019. All right, when, let, when you have a good school, it's because you have a good principal and good teachers. I'm going to tell you this. 
in 19, in 2011, I've told this story before, I don't know if I've told you this, I was at Walter Payton High School, it was a debate, it was uh, the, the mayor's, it was a mayoral debate, I don't know if you were there that night, uh, Rom chose not to show up at that debate, for whatever reason, uh, but you had Carol Mosley Braun, you had Miguel DeValle, uh, you had Reverend Meeks was still in the race at the time, uh, Gary Chico was there as well. And uh, they were talking about how so many of them, now these are people, they're baby boomers. I just named, rattled off the name of like four or five baby boomers. They came of age in the 60s and the 70s. Yep. And almost all of them, I think all of them, had graduated from a Chicago public high school, a public high school in the 70s. And they talked about the 70s as the golden age of education. Okay, and I'm like listening to them talk about this. Why can't we have leaders of the city of Chicago? And one of them went to Kelly High School, and uh, one of them went to Tooley High School, and uh, I forget where Carol Mosley Braun went. But the, uh, I think uh, uh, Fair, uh, Reverend Weeks, Meeks may have gone to Farragut High School. So the point is, Peter, it's like a relative thing. I, the schools were great for some people in the 1970s. They were great for some people in the 80s, the 90s, and the O's. I agree with that. I agree with that. But on, on the whole, you had a lot of kids who were not getting over the finish line. And this, and uh, I mean, it's this case right now. It's the case right now. Yeah, but it's less so. I mean, you know, we have to at least acknowledge progress. Well, I have to acknowledge that the dropout rate is lower, and that's a whole other separate conversation. Correct. Um, uh, one of the reasons dropout rate was so high in the 90s was because Mayor Daley and Paul Vallis uh, believed that you should not, what do they call it, social promotion. Remember that? Remember they were going to fight social, but they started flunking kids left and right. How is that good for anybody, Peter? They, they started holding kids back in third grade. It was about 10,000 kids, I know this for a fact, in the whole system. And the system was 430,000 at wow. the time. So, but the message was, we have to have a standard and we have to hold ourselves to a standard. Now, a lot of people disagree with that as a practice, but look at the other side, okay? Arnie Duncan tells the story of a kid he knew very well, great basketball player, good kid, followed the rules, never got in trouble, asked Arnie to help him write his college essay when he was in 12th grade. And Arnie uh, got together with him, sat down with him, and it quickly became apparent to Arnie that he couldn't read. This is a good kid, 12, 13 grades of CPS. He'd been passed year after year after year, and no one ever once said, you know what, you can't read. That's not good enough. We have to, <laughs> we have to help you or something? I mean, how does that happen? It, it, again, you don't want to blame anybody, but an awful lot of people had to look the other way and say, you know what, push him on. I mean, that, that's, that's, not, that's not a good thing. I mean, so ending social promotions was a tough policy, and they relaxed it after a little while. But it sent a message. We got to hold ourselves to a standard. Otherwise, what are we doing? Hmm. Well, all right. Let's uh, put that one aside. Let's uh, shift gears uh, to national politics. Uh, as much as I would love uh, discussing for the, the rest of the hour, uh, Chicago politics with you. Let's talk a little national politics with you. Uh, your thoughts. You worked in the Obama administration for Arnie Duncan. I did. Uh, yep. And uh, I know you're not pleased with Donald Trump's victory. Uh, I have it. You just have a sense? In quotes, yeah. yeah. Uh, I just got a feeling. Oh, victor, victory in quotes. Quotes, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, 
you know, he lost the election, as I like to point. He lost the popular vote. Only in presidential politics does the loser get to be the winner. Yeah. By this, by, by virtue of, uh, if you did... Oh, vote, the Vietnam War, too. I think we declared victory in the Vietnam War, uh, didn't we? Yeah, I got out Didn't of Westmoreland? <laughs> yeah. General Westmoreland declare victory? Uh, no, that was the advice, declare victory and get out. I don't think they actually did. Uh, I think that if they did uh, football games the way they do uh, presidential elections, the Bears would have gotten credit for beating the Green Bay Packers yeah. in the opener. All right, so uh, putting that aside, um, what is your sense of the best strategy to pursue for the Democrats to defeat Donald John Trump uh, in 2020? So I've heard a couple of different theories from some very uh, plugged-in people. Um, I always think that uh, Democrats win by focusing on bread and butter issues, uh, economic issues. I feel, you know, it's the economy stupid from 1992, Clinton's thing, but there was a recession at the time, so it maybe had a little more currency. The economy is strong, at least by some measures today. I still think that it people are very, very troubled by the economy at the moment. There's a, there's an underlying um, unease about it. Uh, there's a lot of economic insecurity out there. Wages have been flat and costs keep going up. And I've seen a lot of research to that effect that people, you get them in a focus group and they will tell you everything costs a lot more and I'm not making that much more. Uh, and you know, you put those two together and it's just, you got the middle class squeeze. So I believe that's a very real phenomenon in the country. You have extreme income inequality. So I think there's an economic narrative, and um, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and others have tapped into it, and I hope that they don't forget that. What, what else is going on is that you see a lot of very big, bold, progressive ideas. We talked about one of them before, Green New Deal, but eliminating all college debt, um, you know, guaranteed government jobs, uh, uh, free college. Now, these are things, these are expensive things. In a country with a $22 trillion debt, mm. the interest alone for the next decade is estimated to be about $7 trillion. So, um, a year. No, no, no. $7 trillion over a decade. Okay, decade. $700 yeah. billion a year, yeah. which is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I think that there should be an economic narrative. But, you know, some will argue that, you know, and, and I do think it ought to. Um, very, you know, we cannot forget the voters who abandoned, who voted for Obama and then abandoned him for Trump, so-called Obama-Trump voters in states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. I think the Rust Belt is the swing district of America. Only eight states flipped between 2008 and 2016. Eight states in the whole country between Obama's 08 election and Trump's 16 election. Six of the eight were in the Midwest. The, the only other two, I believe, are... Um, were they, uh, Florida was one of them, and maybe the other one was... Uh, uh, well, Ohio's the Midwest. Uh, Florida... Maybe Arizona? Did, did, did Obama? No. Uh, well, did... No, I don't think Obama... That's John McCain state. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was only two states, maybe North Carolina. Um, I think you're correct. But only two states... Uh, eight states flipped, six of them were in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. We are the swing district of America, and reviving the Rust Belt, like really bringing it into the new century, stronger and better, is, I think, the existential economic challenge for America. The coasts are doing pretty well, relatively speaking, and, you know, in a, in a globalized world, and we saw it with NAFTA, they, they gained jobs under NAFTA, the Midwest lost jobs. I mean, 
So we're the swing district of America. So I think that whatever your message is, it better work in the Rust Belt. And in the Rust Belt, an economic message works. And a big, bigger, bigger, bigger government programs, uh, I don't think works as well. That doesn't mean I don't support them. Mm -hmm. I completely support the Green New Deal or certainly shifting away from fossil fuels. I completely support you know, figuring out how to lower the cost of college tuition. I completely support a robust safety net. Uh, there's a proposal out right now um, to uh, guarantee a homes guarantee. I don't know if you've seen anything about it. It popped and Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are retweeting and everything. I, I think that's great. We, you know, we, we have a national housing crisis and, you know, it's not going to get solved. And you saw that I wrote about housing the other day. It wasn't about this particular dimension of it. It was more about how to bring middle class families into struggling neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. But we have a national housing crisis. So I'm all for a robust safety net. I like to think of these things as investments um, because those voters, those middle class voters who feel squeezed, don't really like handouts. What they like is uh, investments. So. I'm a message guy. That's, that's my message. Talk about investing in ourselves, in America, in infrastructure. I mean, the biggest mistake Trump made, he'd be walking to re-election right now mm -hmm. if he had done an infrastructure bill. If he had done a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, Democrats would have had to vote for it. They, never, they couldn't have not, vote, not voted for that. And he'd be cutting ribbons all day long right now. Why do you think he didn't do it? Well, I think he's a madman who has <laughs> no sense of, yeah. of, of, you know, who, who literally can't, can't remember what he did yesterday or yeah. said yesterday. So he just wakes up every day and runs off in a new direction. But, uh, you know, he got hung up on the wall. He got hung up on repealing the uh, Affordable Care Act, and he got hung up on a tax cut. Yeah. And, you know, just as uh, the Affordable Care Act co cost Obama the House, I think Trump's agenda cost him the House. And, you know, so in some ways I'm grateful that he didn't have the wisdom yeah. to pass an infrastructure bill. I think he would have been, it, it, this election would be over right now. You do. Been, I do. I think it'd be over right now. I mean, nobody could have predicted just the, the extreme wackiness of this guy, but if, yeah. he, well, if, it's, if, yeah. if we had a, a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending running going around the country right now, We'd, we'd be dead in the water. The one thing that uh, Ram and I agree on about this, uh, I heard him say this the other day. I, I disagree very much where he took this argument, but uh, the, I think the general point he was making or trying to make was that attitudes toward Donald Trump, hostility to Donald Trump is so intense that it, it almost it, it makes things like reality like a infrastructure bill, irrelevant. Yeah, and and so when you start off in an election with someone so virulently disliked, yeah, that's a challenge. And when he ex exacerbates that every day, Peter, with his yeah. insanity, yeah, that's a challenge for his party. And so. Um, while I agree with you that absolutely he would have advanced his cause if had he done something practical that would have helped people, like an infrastructure bill, I, you're absolutely correct in my opinion. He still would have to deal with the uh, other. Yeah, and, and I think the um, 
The argument that I've seen a number of people talk about lately, and I think it's interesting, I'm going to keep an eye on it, is exhaustion. So you have 43, 44% of the country is going to vote for him. They love him. They, they have not abandoned him despite all the things he has done. Yeah. So that there's no other thing he could do that would suddenly make them say, all right, that's it. Yeah. I'm done with Donald. <laughs> you know, he's... he's you you know, went too far. He, <laughs> as he himself said, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and they'd still vote for yes. him. So you got them. And then you got the 44 or 45% on the other side who would vote against him no matter what he did, yes. <laughs> even with the infrastructure yeah. bill. So it's about the 10% in the middle. And some of that 10% voted for him. And some of them we lost just because of, uh, some of them just didn't like Hillary. Some of them voted for Jill Stein, some of them, whatever. But there's an exhaustion argument that some of those folks, especially um, uh, non-college white women, I've seen a bunch of surveys showing support really, really down among non-college white women uh, for Trump. You know, I think I saw something that he beat Hillary by 27 points in that demographic, non-college white women, and he's beating Biden by only four points in that demographic. So that's a big difference. That's a lot of votes. And why they're leaving him could be any of, of 100 reasons, but the idea that they're just exhausted by the circus is something that I've seen a number of people write about recently. Mm -hmm. And I, so I'm going to keep an eye on that one. And the that exhaustion might... argument. All right. So there's two narratives that uh, could be victorious in your own opinion. One is the exhaustion narrative, mm -hmm. which obviously Joe Biden will be playing tremendously if he's mm -hmm. the nominee. And the other one is the economic narrative. How would you frame that if you were running a presidential campaign? You know, you've seen some of the language about an economy that works for everybody. And... Uh, you know, I think that it's just not hard to find a lot of people for whom the economy isn't working. And a lot of them are white working class people in what we call Trump country. But I think it's, it's in urban America. You know, I think a big reason why the South and the West sides are emptying out is because of lack of opportunity. It's also crime. It's also schools. It's also just some organic desire to, you know, to leave the city and have that suburban life, I think, is part of it. But, uh, you know, I think there's common ground, frankly, around economic, lack of opportunity in, for people. Good, good jobs. You know, there are jobs, but people want good jobs. They want jobs that really pay so that you're not squeezed every month and mm -hmm. you can afford to own a home and you can afford to save a little money for your kid's college and you can have a re retirement. I mean, a lot of those things are really at risk. Economic insecurity, I think I'd frame it around the sense that everybody's anxious about money because they are. And what focus groups that I've seen all talk about costs. Like people just keep saying everything keeps costing more. There's so many more things you pay for today, cable and whatever, you know, that you just didn't pay four years ago. Everybody's got a mobile phone bill. And in the old days, you know, there was, if you didn't use the phone that much, you wouldn't pay that much. Remember that? Yeah. If you didn't make a lot of <laughs> a long time ago, yeah. If you didn't no make a lot of long distance call, phone calls, yeah. you know, you didn't yeah. get, you know, whatever. I don't know what the co it cost to have a phone back in the 60s, but it wasn't a lot of money. Yeah. Today, you know, before you know it, you've been nickel and dimed up into, you know, three figures every yeah, month. And yeah. so I, I, I would frame it around, you know, an economy that just doesn't work for a lot of people, a, a sense that the costs are rising and wages aren't keeping up. And all right. And so uh, the issue of Donald Trump as intimidator, uh, I hear this a lot from Democrats uh, that 
particularly in the aftermath of the debates. Oh, Donald Trump is going to be a lot harder on these uh, debaters. They better up their game because Donald Trump's going to come at them. And Donald Trump's going to do this, that, and the other thing. I think he's gotten in the heads of Democrats. We talk about this on the show all the time. Like Democrats, it's like he's it's, it's in their head in, in a certain way. So if you were, you, you said you, you, you're sort of a fan of Elizabeth Warren. And many people come on this show, and the first thing they said, she can't win because he'll just say Pocahontas to her, and she'll fade. You know, that's it. I'm like, I don't buy that, Peter. I'm just telling you that. But people, no, I don't buy it either. I don't buy it either. I think she's, I think she'll make him look incredibly stupid. Uh, You know, because she'll talk about real issues and real, real challenges, and he won't be able to keep up on that. And he'll default to what he does. And we've seen that. And you know, maybe people were, were you know, tickled by that back in 2016. That here was a guy who was breaking all the rules, and it was kind of fun. But I think, you know, if, if the exhaustion argument is true, then, you know, the, those swing voters in the middle are going to be turned off by that. And they're going to say, you know, you're, you're, you're not talking about what's going on in the lives of American people. Mm-hmm. You, you're talking, you, you live in a reality television world. And, uh, you know, I'm here to focus on the lives of the American people. So that's what she has to do. I don't think you can out-insult them, you know. I don't think that's the right strategy. Uh, all right. The strategy is to force him onto turf that he doesn't want to be on. And he doesn't want to talk about what's going on to, with the little guy in America because he'll lose that argument. And uh, when you hear him go into, where was it, California, and to call the Democrats, I'm doing something on my head. Uh, what did he say? Uh, they're socialists who uh, like crime and. Uh, uh, Take away your hamburgers <laughs> and and uh, late term abortions. It was something like that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Meanwhile, abortions at an all time low. Oh yeah. You know, good argument for family planning. And and I saw an article today that said that there's no connection between the states that have restricted access to abortions and the drop. It's dropped just as much in the states that have protected the uh, you know the right to an yeah. abortion. There's no logic at all. I mean, once you break it apart, there is no logic. Uh, before I allow you to go play your guitar and sing your so- some songs for us, uh, I got to ask you a Joe Biden question. I know you didn't name Joe Biden as one of the people uh, that you were sort of leaning toward. You mentioned uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete. Uh, I'm a little surprised that Joe wasn't on the list. Uh, well, let me say this. I really like Joe Biden. I, I worry that that he's too old to, you know, I mean, I, I met President Obama in the White House about four times during my four years in Washington, and he was about 48 years old at the time. And every time I saw him, he looked exhausted, like literally <laughs> yeah. collapsing exhausted. And, you know, I thought, wow, this must be, I mean, needless to say, it's the toughest job in the world. And, you know, I just worry that it would just be really, really hard. Um, and I also think that, uh, you know, Elizabeth's earned earned it. She's got a lot of great ideas. She's she's very comfortable in her own skin. She's you know, she's just running a fabulous campaign. And I admire that about her. So, you know, I, I think Joe Biden in many ways is the perfect candidate because he embodies that bread and butter background that I always, you know, emphasize is so important. But in many ways he embodies what people don't want which is you know a lifelong career politician and they don't want were you con- did you watch the last debate yeah were you concerned when he uh, sort of went on that uh, riff speaking of great guitar riffs uh at the final question he ended up talking about record players and uh, i 
So figure. I confess I didn't see it. I had to. I, I disappeared from the end of the debate. I, I had see. to do something. I had to go somewhere. But um, I heard about it. Yeah. I read about it. Yeah, it didn't sound good. But you know what I do trust is I trust his judgment. I trust that his experience would uh, come to bear. And that you know he wouldn't do any of the crazy, ridiculous things that this president has done. I agree. Plus, and I, I and I always bringing it back to Chicago. Uh, I've heard many Mayor Richard M. Daley riffs, which were as equally incomprehensible. Yeah. And the people of the city of Chicago, as you just pointed out, loved him more and more. <laughs> the more incomprehensible he got, they would always. I go, man, what's that guy saying? And they go, Ben. He loves Chicago. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I, I mean, and and yes, if you if you tried to unpack the syntax of every sentence, you'd find th- mistakes. But people knew where he stood. They knew what they 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 always knew what he meant and knew where he stood. Yeah, I think they they may, the same may be said about Joey Biden. All right, let's play. Get a song out here. You brought your guitar, and uh, so while he sets up, I'll just tell you uh, that Peter Cunningham. Uh, is the only aide to Mayor Daly or Mayor Rahm who can play a bar chord. Oh, excuse me. You were never an aide to Mayor Rahm. Correct. All right. I'm <laughs> correct. For some reason, I have you working for Mayor Rahm, and you never did. I don't know why I think Take that. a chill He's a friend man. of mine, and I've certainly uh, been an informal advisor. I see. Okay. But, uh, no, I never actually worked for him. Informal. If he was formal, you'd have to blame him for the stuff he did. But as an informal one, we could just say never listen to your advice. Um, so, Ben, uh, this is a song that um, was played at Woodstock 50 years ago this summer. Okay. Sorry, I'm making bad noises there. Um, 50 years ago this summer, uh, and it's from a guy named John Sebastian, and it's about the fact that, you know, all the generations come along and they think they're smarter than the next one, they know what they're doing, and, uh, you know, the truth is nobody, nobody has a franchise on always being right that right correct people are going to come along and say okay you're from another era your days are done we're the next one up so here you go it's called my younger generation why must every generation think their folks are square no matter where their heads are they know moms ain't there for I swore when I was small that I'd remember when I knew what's wrong with them that I was younger then Determined to remember all the cardinal rules Like sun showers, illegal grounds for cutting school And I hope, no, I have forgotten maybe one or two and I hope that I recall them all before the babies do. And I know he'll have a question or two. Like, hey, Pop, can I go ride my Zoom? Goes 200 miles an hour, suspended by balloons. Can I put a droplet of this new stuff on my tongue? And imagine frothing dragon while you sit and rack your lungs and I must be permissive and understanding of the younger generation now I know that all my thoughts my kid assumed 
And all my deepest worries must be his cartoons And still I'll try to tell him all the things I've done Relating to what he can do when he becomes a man And still he'll put his fingers in the fan <laughs> And hey, Pop, my girlfriend's only three She's got her own video phone and she's taking LSD And now that we're best friends, she wants to give a hit to me Hey, what's the matter, Daddy? How come you're turning green? Can it be that you can't live up to your dream? Woodstock, uh. 1969. <laughs> All right, man. That is a. Uh, I wouldn't have. I did not. I've never heard that song until you just sang it. No. And uh, it just doesn't seem like the kind of song that we sung at Woodstock. It's on the album. Which you haven't listened to, obviously, in a long time. Uh, uh, no, not listen. Not a huge fan of Woodstock. Just have to share that with you, Peter. I thought you were there, you just, <laughs> and you forgot about it. I forget a lot of things. I don't think I'd ever forget being at Woodstock. That's the old line. If, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there, right? Yeah, you weren't there, right? Uh, uh, anyway. Very good. That is the great Peter Cunningham, and... Uh, uh, he plays with a band called, what's the name of the band? The Bread and Butter Band. The Bread and Butter Band. Just like my politics, man. Just like his politics. When he's not writing speeches. Are you writing speeches for politicians anymore? Sure. I mean, nobody at the moment. I did write some for Hickenlooper. And, uh, obviously, I wrote a, lot, a bunch for Bill. We didn't I, talk about the Oh, my God. Bill we didn't Daly's even talk campaign. about Bill Daly. So, oh, my God. You'll have to have me back. You know what? Having had you on the show once... Makes you a regular on our show, all right? Okay, well, That's how it goes. And we bring you back uh, on the one to three, and then you get to spar with some of our more liberal guests. It's a little interesting thing. That more happened. liberal than me? <laughs> yeah, more liberal than you. Oh, my God. Where are you going to find that? Uh, I, could, I had one here today about three hours ago in that very chair. Uh, Peter Cunningham, thank you so much for schlepping in with your guitar and uh, spending time to answer all my questions, talk politics with me. And we didn't even get into, I mean, we really didn't get into half. We didn't get into the this last election. We didn't get into Lori Lightfoot. We didn't get into your thoughts uh, about uh, where our public schools are heading. The charter school debate is something that Peter and I have had our issues on in the past. Oh, my God, there could be a teacher strike in the city of Chicago. You talked about. I know, I'm worried what, about that. What would Mayor Daley do? He'd, uh, he'd give him what, he'd give him. Maybe a little more. I don't know. I don't know what he would do. I think he, like I said, his his philosophy was don't make him an enemy. And he'd be very, very careful about not demonizing them. And I think Mayor Lightfoot has been very careful about that as well. You know, sometimes it just takes a little spark to, uh, you know, set off a, uh, you know, a wave of resentment. Um, we've seen that happen. So I think he'd, uh, I think he'd call them in. I don't know how important it was to the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, a little sugar here, a little sugar there. No strike, huh? That's 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 the way it works. What's I mean, it you know, take? I, I know, I, I know. Everybody <laughs> thinks that's so malevolent, but I mean, I don't know. think it's malevolent. I mean, it's I, kinda, when you said that thing, I put it in quotes. Bought Laird piece. I don't. It's like, yeah. I mean, he, he, I don't see anything malevolent about that. Yeah, they're hardworking, and you know, they deserve as good a salary as we can afford. I just think. Well, it's also the jobs. We, that's a whole other subject another time. But there's also the issue of. Like social workers and nurses and 
therapists and what have you. Right. Right. Uh, and um, anyway, Peter Cunningham, we're not going to solve all the problems today, but we uh, we got a, a start and we got to hear a great song. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Ben Jarofsky. It's another Ben Jarofsky bonus. Take care, everybody.